1: We wanna help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey.
0: Guys, welcome back to the show. Today, we are thrilled to be chatting with one of Hollywood's most well-known and respected screenwriters,
1: Javier grigio Watch, Though best known as one of the Emmy award-winning writer-producers of Lost, Javi is a prolific writer of television shows, comic books, movies, and the occasional critical essay.
0: He's a master storyteller with a deep understanding of character. Today, we're going to deep dive on long-form character development, as well as uh, Javi's philosophy on operational theme, which I just am fascinated by. And we'll be answering your questions that you posted on our Facebook page. Um, so Javi, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for
2: having me. I really appreciate it. Oh my God. I, and and what a what a lovely introduction I... <laughs> I hope I can live up to it. (laughs) Oh, come on.
1: Come on. Uh, So why don't we get started with our weeks or what we call, excuse me, what we call adventures in screenwriting. So usually I go first. Uh, My week was, uh, I don't know, I feel like I have a hangover from not drinking, unfortunately, but um, from the writing I finished two weeks ago right? I still feel this sort of desperate urge to start something new, but everything I want to start feels like too big, too heavy, too complicated. Is that the right thing that I'm supposed to be working on? Am I going to spend the next couple of months working on that, you know, that sort of beginning place where it's the blank space. It's not even a blank page. It's like this, like maw of time in front of me. (laughs) What am I supposed to be working on? And so I had like a real funky day where it was just all the it was like Wednesday I think and all the inside voices were just like full like you're garbage your crap you should quit like all that like all that delightful stuff that's inside my head uh and every really, writer has that head oh yes. yeah really really loud and I posted about it on the Facebook group and I just got like such wonderful support like no one offered me fixes which I really appreciated like everyone was just sort of like yeah that happens You know, and like, so it just felt really like, okay, I can have one really shitty day. I mean, I had a lot of shitty days, but like that was the pinnacle of it. And then later that night, I sort of, uh, I let myself do that. I just stopped fighting it, right? I was like, okay, I'm writing this day off. And then later that night, I had this idea and I was like, oh, and it's sort of similar to an idea I've been playing with for a while. And so I got to dive into some research and, and I just felt alive again. And, but part of that process was sort of honoring that funk I was in and not, like the fighting it was taking up so much energy, right? The beating myself up for beating myself up kind of thing. So um, I, apparently I take a really long time to process this shit, so <laughs> it, you know but I have this new idea that I'm playing with that I love and I'm, and I feel like I'm mean, gonna have so much fun writing it that it doesn't matter if it's the right thing or I'm going to spend months on it or whatever. Like I'm going to have fun. This is, I'm excited have about fun. it. That's my new motto. Have yeah. Fun, so people. That just felt uh, great. That felt great. And then doing this show is really exciting with Javi. So I'm really excited to learn and perhaps this will inform what I'm working on, you know, and then I'll leave, I'll be all excited on the show and then I'll leave and be like, Oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. So that will be fun. <laughs> um, so, uh... <laughs> so Javi, how
0: was your week?
2: Uh, it's been really, really busy. Um, you know, I, the, 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 the new normal is that we have to hustle so much, you know, like I, I remember the beginning of my career, you know, if you were lucky and you were, you know, you got on the show, you were there for 22 episodes, you did your year there, you got a month off and then the show hopefully got picked up and you, and now, you know, I find myself working multiple jobs simultaneously. Like I'm writing a pilot that's due a week from today. And then i had a deadline for an episodic script for i'm working on a show called from which is going to be on epics and uh, my first script for that was due so so i've been just i mean it, it, I'm, I'm literally at that point where like if i i think rod serling once said that it, that he was so busy that if he dropped this pencil and like bent over to pick it up he would he already go behind schedule so it's it's just it's been that week it's just been a week of you know powering through it and you know when 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 um, my boss on from said you know we want the script on friday He's a, he's a very nice man. He was like, is that okay? Are you gonna need more time, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, we all, we all know that the dirty little secret is that when the rubber meets the road, we just sit down and bang it the fuck out. So that's been my week, just banging it the fuck out, you know, and hoping that, that, that it's good.
1: Yes, <laughs> So yeah.
2: No, I mean, I, I kind of envy, uh, Laurie, and the, the, the time you've had to sort of uh, hate yourself and beat yourself up because <laughs> it's so much, such a great part of the writing process. And I haven't had a chance to do any of that. I literally have just had to write. <laughs>
1: And I envy you, right? I want to be in that like I have too much work and not enough time because that's when you get it done, right? Like the the sort of panic writing. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I'm a great panic writer. Like, oh my god, it's (laughs)
1: due. Yeah, and then it's like you don't have time to overthink things, right? You're like, this is what it is. It works. Let's do it. And. And you know, I'm in the place where I'm like overthinking everything. Right. Yeah. So
2: yeah. No, my, 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 yeah. yeah my, my wife says that, that my process is, you know, if I have a three week deadline, I spent two weeks hating myself. And then I spent one week writing the actual script. <laughs> so, I call that the,
1: the chips and crying stage. Right. <laughs> I eat a lot of chips and I spend a lot of time crying. And then the last week I write the
2: feature, right? It's yep. really yeah. good
1: to know that we're all doing the same thing.
0: Yeah,
2: it's a, this That's is a true. lifestyle. This is, this isn't just a vocation. It's a lifestyle. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's the artist's way.
2: Of yeah, us. absolutely. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. All right, Meg. Uh, oh, do you I have had more, kind Abby? of the same, yeah. I had a combo platter of both of those, but uh, mostly I'm, I'm also um, been on deadline and things are due and people are waiting and uh, uh, I'm trying to get a new project like, like, like hobby in terms of multiple balls in the air. To the point that i'm writing so and i'm trying to write my passion project with our podcast listeners sprinting from 6 to 8 a.m which has been super fun it's like the fun part of my day um but my brain is very very tired uh, all i could say is i was on the phone yesterday with my agent and he said can i just stop you like you sound really tired are you tired and are you okay i'm like i'm just really tired i i'm tired which then you like when your brain gets this tired i don't know if i can trust what I'm assessing because I think I'm just tired. Like I text ranted to Lorian today, like the my, my passion pilot that I've been writing from six to eight is done and, it, and it, there's no one to buy it. Like, I don't even know why I wrote this. And the producer is in me is like, okay, well, that was a fun sample. No one's buying this. Don't ask your producers to even package it, move on. Uh, so, but I'm like, am I just tired? Maybe, maybe I'm tired. Um, yes. But I feel the sadness of that. I feel the sadness of really believing in my producer brain, well, this, there's actually not an audience for this. I love it. Um, uh, but, and I believe there isn't that's not correct. I actually believe there is an audience for it. I believe there's a huge audience for it, which is basically the masterpiece theater audience. That's American, not British, <laughs> but nobody will make it, uh, because it's not appealing to 20 year olds. It's appealing to, you know, 40 year olds and 50 year olds and, uh, so there's no big twist and there's not tons of sex and there's not you know it's not about 20 year olds who are going to go have a lot of sex in the period piece, <laughs> right like so i'm like oh my god it's just a straight period piece there is no like twist for the 20 year old so i started to go down into the muck on that this morning and i'm still a bit i
2: think, there I anyway. think you know one of the things that, that that i that i'm getting from from both of you and that i feel a lot of the time and very vividly is there's also like a certain amount of postpartum that goes once you finish a script you know it's like uh, i I'm shocked that it's only been two weeks, Lorian, for you to start a uh, a new project because sometimes like you know when I finish something it takes it takes a little bit more than that to just kind of get over having finished you know and and having metaphorically give, given birth, you know so and and Meg like, I'm wondering weeks.
1: I'm, I don't exactly know what it is because I was mm-hmm. working on a project I have in development at the same time, so like. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know that it's two weeks, like
2: longer. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if if Meg's sort of doldrums aren't, aren't um, a little bit, I mean, you did just finish it, you know, and, and you've kind of stepped out of that world. So I'm wondering if maybe that's- No, it that's could be,
0: point. I mean, I'm, and I'm editing it. And, and mm-hmm. so my edit brain is on, right? Cause it's oh. too long, you know, those normal first pass, you know, it's, I need to cut three pages, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so my that edit brain has come on, and so it, mm-hmm. with it came the producer brain because I used to be a producer, and mm-hmm. now it's looking at it differently, and it's and it's hard because the the producer doesn't believe in it. I'd mm-hmm. be honest with you as a as a widget to sell, um, and my plan always was package it like with the star, with the actor, with the director, so that they have to make it because mm-hmm. it's, you know, Nicole Kidman and Ang Lee or whatever, right? Um, for example, hypothetically. For example. Okay, just hypothetically. <laughs> or <laughs> They're listening.
2: or oh, hopefully, I mean, I, I <laughs> hope that's who you get. Wouldn't you know? that be amazing? But, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if
0: the, I, but I don't know, I just, yeah, I do think it's the doldrums. I also have had this, hobby for, I, I have optioned this book series you know, like for three years and it's Mm -hmm. been writing it here, stop, write it here because it's, you know, it's my own thing. And I just made this commitment to finish it. And I do think it's a bit of doldrums of it's been with me for so long to now see it separate from me. It's just this weird, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I think think, I'm also tired.
2: (laughs) You know, I think, but I think it's it's interesting because I also think that because of what we've been going through for the last five years, um, you know, regardless of where you stand in the political spectrum but I think, you know, where I stand um, the the last you've either been fighting a war to preserve your values or you've been fighting a war to preserve your values day in and day out, and I think and I think it's it's uh, I think it's taken a toll on everybody, especially and and the pandemic and everything else. I think that the the tenor of our of our day to day life is so heightened right now. How could you not be emotionally exhausted all the time?
0: It's true, and I think coming back out into the world has been so exciting, but it's also oddly tiring, mm-hmm. right? In terms of Who has masks, who doesn't? What does that mean? You're with your friends, can I hug you? I think we can hug each other. Like, There's always this processing going on um, Mm -hmm. and I'm really looking forward to not be doing that soon, but I do think that's too. All right, well, let's get to the good stuff, the good stuff, the hobby stuff. (laughs) We're gonna go into the brain of hobby. Um, I just wanna start off the top with the thing that I really wanna talk about, uh, Mm -hmm. which is when we were on a panel together, you brought up operational theme. Right. And I just was so fascinated by it, and I don't even know how to ask you about it other than to say, what is an operational theme,
2: <laughs> and know, how? I,
0: what can we learn about it?
2: Well, look, I, th- I think it's 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 what I call the central dilemma of the character who's the main character in a series. Um, I think whether you're talking about. Um, serialized storytelling or, you know, anthology storytelling, single episode, or even sort of the short form that we all seem to be writing nowadays, which is eight to 13 episode series. Um, you know, we're, we're still making television and we're not making movies or novels. So I think that in order to ensure the longevity of your project, your main character needs to have an irresolvable contradiction in his or her or their um, center, you know, the center of their soul. That's the thing that drives eight hours of drama or, you know, I, it's it's funny. I just um, I just finished watching. Um, I know this much is true: the uh, the, the HBO uh, uh, adaptation of the novel, and it's interesting because the, the Mark Ruffalo character, his operational theme is quite literally that he cannot get over his sort of toxic masculinity to have a, a, a to have a real, honest communication with anybody. You know, he is he is such a belligerent man and such a wounded guy that he literally just can't get the words out. You know, and it's one of the most interesting ones I've seen because you know, you like the guy, you want him to get better, but you realize that he's, that he, you know, it's going to be very, very slow going. And I think it's the same thing you see with, for example, Don Draper, you know, his, his operational theme is that he is constantly striving to match up to an ideal life that doesn't actually exist, but he sort of created in his mind when he was, you know, the son of a poor farmer, you know, this this idealized version of the man in the gray flannel suit. And even as time passes him by with it, he's still trying to be that guy. And look at the end of at the end the, the the really interesting thing about the way Mad Men ended is that Don Draper never changed. You know, the show continued to basically live in that contradiction even to its bitter end. And I think it's and I think it's something that that you have to whether you're doing an eight, a six episode adaptation of of of, uh, of a Wally Lamb novel or you're doing Mad Men for seven years. You know, you need to you need to have that contradiction in the center of your character because that's what's going to drive the story. And I think ultimately it's the thing that makes cops, doctors, and lawyers um, so prevalent in television. You know, like, cops are obsessed with law and order. They're here to bring about law and order. And the great thing is there's challenges to it coming all the time, (laughs) you know? And and when you're not writing a show that has that clear franchise, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that pilot writers have to get to is, what do my main characters have in them that is gonna stop them from fulfilling everything they want in the pilot episode?
0: you know? Right. So and I love the word contradiction. Like there's an, so I think whats what you're saying that there's an actual contradiction within them. Forget yes. about the outside world. Yes. There might be a contradiction with the outside world, Like yeah. I'm a poor farmer and I want to be the man in the gray suit. But what I yeah. John Draper is so fascinating because he is driving to be that. And yet he is self-sabotaging all yes. over the place. Yes. And that self-sabotage is what is that contradiction, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, and, 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 that the great the men in the gray final suit is unachievable. like that that whole sort of archetype. it It, it was invented by people like him. Um, I think you know if if you look at Breaking bad, I think that that, that has one of the greatest combinations of that contradiction and then the outer uh, circumstances that trigger it. You know, uh, uh, Walter White's inner conflict from the first episode is that he has to save everything that he uh, that that he loves and he's unable to, you know. And then he finds out a way, but in order to save everything he loves, he has to become something everyone hates and something that is actually who he really is on the inside, which is this amazingly competent criminal. So that push and pull is, is the center of the series. And it starts from, you know, jump street on, on, on breaking bad, you know, the the extraordinary circumstance of he gets the chance to become a drug Lord happens in that pilot, but it's something that's inside of him the entire time. Um, And it, goes all the way to the end when he, you know, basically becomes evil Batman, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> Do you, is there any hint or tricks you can give us or not tricks, but like advice about does that operational theme uh, need to show up as soon as you meet the character in the pilot, or is it something that the pilot is discovering and uncovering as you go?
2: I think, I think it's, I think, you know, look, the character's going to have it in them no matter what. I mean, they, they start with that. Um, you know, I think that the first scene of Mad Men is really interesting because it's Don sitting in a restaurant uh, talking to the, uh, the the black waiter who's serving him drinks about whether he smokes Lucky Strikes and why he doesn't smoke Lucky Strikes and all that. And in its own really subtle way, I mean, it's like the scene is basically establishing, you know, Don Draper only kind of knows the world that he lives in and the world that he's created for himself. Um, and he's trying to figure out what the outside world is like. So even as somebody in advertising, his scope of empathy is limited by his own experience. Most people probably don't read that much into that scene, but I mean, that's what I saw You know, the third or fourth time, because I, I tried to study that pilot to see exactly what you're saying. Um, but you don't really get it until the very end of the pilot when you realize that you know, you've seen him fucking around, you've seen him drinking, you've seen him at the ad firm, and then you realize, oh my God, this guy has a wife and a kid in, in a suburb. And then you realize that's the unsolvable contradiction. He has all of these negative impulses. And he's also trying to keep up appearances and being, you know, January Jones's husband and all that. And so I think, I think, you know, look, I th- I think you you drop the dime in a big way in the in, in at the end of the pilot, but I think it's got to be there all along, you know.
1: Right. I'm wondering how you when you're in your own work in your own pilot, how you mm-hmm. check it, right? Like, does it need to be obvious in every scene? Like, mm-hmm. I love the sort of build of it and mm-hmm. then the dropping the dime at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, and I,
2: then- I I gotta t- I gotta tell you, I suck at it. <laughs> uh, it's one of, um, one of the reasons I wrote the essays because I needed to clarify that shit in my mind. And, and I, one of the things I found out, you know, this is, this is a, a vast exaggeration, but a, a lot of the time, and I think it's true for everybody, by the way, I think this is why younger staff writers and younger writers can be very difficult in the writer's room. It's because your critical faculty grows up long before your, your creative talent and your, and your belief in your creative talent. So it's a lot easier, especially when you're a starting writer to say this sucks, or I don't like this than to pitch the fix, you know? Um, And I think with, with operational theme, it's something that, that I identified. um, And look, I'm sure people have said things like it before. I'm not, I'm not, but, but it, but it's one of those things where I do now. I mean, I certainly look at all of the pilots that I write and and think, well, what's the operational theme here? And I was developing something with Jose Molina that, uh, you know, somebody who I do a podcast podcast with um, and also a writer, producer and a fellow Puerto Rican. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, we were developing this thing and he looks at me, and goes, what's the operational theme hobby. And I'm like, Oh crap, <laughs> he's turning <laughs> it on me. <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the, the writer hobby writes a little bit more from the heart. And then I go back and I look at it and go, okay, did I actually fulfill any of the intellectual goals that I've, that, that I've laid out for people who read my essays. Right. Um,
1: I think, I think that's so important, right? We talk on the show a lot about like a barf draft or a birth draft, mm-hmm. when the thing just like sort of upends out of you, mm-hmm. and it's it. Sometimes it's hard to be like, what's the theme? What's the this? What's the this? Like, you mm-hmm. do have to honor that process of yeah, you know yeah, it coming out that sort of emotional blast of it, and then mm-hmm. you can go back in in the second, third draft of like mm-hmm. figuring yeah, and- out, asking well, and those it's questions. It's interesting
0: to look at your work sometimes as a dream that there are symbols in there of what, of that operational theme, but maybe Mm -hmm. it's not clear. It's like, you have to almost be a detective Mm -hmm. of a thing separate from you, right? And be like, where is it? Like, is it that piece of her right there? Is that it? You know, because Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes these characters take on a life of their own, right? And they're trying to tell you their operational theme and you have Mm -hmm. to honor it. Versus sometimes when I decide what it is and then I try to put it in, it doesn't work as well as, you know, looking for the clues in the yeah. dream itself of what you what you did isn't
2: that isn't that the best when you like don't think about it you write it you know because of how whatever your process is and then you look back and you go like oh i did it okay
0: <laughs> you know, right
2: and, no often I,
0: i'm like oh my god she has no agency again Shit. okay i gotta go back I, that's what i every time i'm like oh my god she's doing nothing
1: she's watching everything and then sometimes um, someone else reads your work that you give it to and they're like oh it's about this and mm-hmm. like there was all those little clues laid in that you sort of weren't aware of, and someone else points it out to you, and you're like, "Oh,
2: oh, that I, is I, what I, it's yeah. about." <laughs> I wrote an essay. I wrote an essay about Star Wars, right, and my relationship to Star Wars, and and uh, and then I read it again, like. A little bit later, after I finished it and it was published, and I went, "This is all about my divorce, isn't it?" <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> oh my it's god, it's like, amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's it's uh, you know you 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 know one of the we things can't about, help
1: it, right? You no, can't help it, right? No, you it's, can't.
2: Uh, you know, look, every everything I've always said, every television show is a therapist's couch for its creator. You know, in ways that you cannot. Uh, discern when you're doing it. You know, I think you try to be aware of it so that you don't foist all of your crap on the world in a way that's burdensome to the world. Um, but, but I think that. And look, when you write, you have to treat. For me, I have to treat it like I'm in session with my psychotherapist. I can't treat it like I'm gonna figure out if I'm actually achieving the correct volume of transference with my therapist, and he's he's you know em- empathic enough, but also detached. And I'm not thinking about those things when I'm telling him about my issues with you know you know being rejected as a child <laughs> you know that's not so and I think it's the same with writing I think there's all the intellectual stuff and then I think when it's just you on the keyboard you just it's just its just you you know
1: Meg that's what you're talking about with this piece right you allowed mm-hmm. yourself to be fully yes. in it and then your yes. intellectual piece came in and is beating you up unnecessarily yeah. right? well, I don't know if it's unnecessary I, I mean, think, think it's all unnecessary all right,
0: we're not going to get into this <laughs> back to the good stuff all right so javi we have some questions for you from our audience
2: oh cool um,
0: okay <laughs> uh so there's some questions right off the bat about lost um mm-hmm. nicholas i'm happy to answer those You're sure? good good nicholas asked about the development of the first season and mm-hmm. how much of that plot of season one was figured out before the writing staff was hired versus how much was created in the room
2: mm-hmm. um well, He's
0: th- they're looking for what did a, you know, a week of work on that show look like? What were you doing? <laughs>
2: um, I wrote a very long essay about that that you can find on my website. Uh, and I would, I, I'm not gonna be able to cover it also. It, it's it's, yeah, it's just a full memoir of that yeah. first year. Um, but I would suggest that he read it because I think it'd be very useful. Um, look, um, first of all, Lost was developed in a very different way from most shows. Lost was greenlit off of an outline uh, in late January. By, and this is a time when most network television, and we're talking about the ABC, NBC, CBS model of network television, have been developing their show since the previous summer. You know? So, this, so, so uh, JJ and Damon write this outline, take it in, they get greenlit. Now they have to write a script and figure out what the show is and do basically six months worth of work in about three weeks. So what they did was they hired me and Paul Dini, who is a very well-known comics writer. He, he was the head writer for the animated Batman. He's, he's a legend. He created Harley Quinn. Jennifer Johnson, who is also just a phenomenal writer and showrunner. She show ran the chase. I worked with her on Cowboy Bebop just now. And Christian Taylor, who was the showrunner. He worked on Six Feet Under, but he's the showrunner of um, Teen Wolf, right? So we're all together. We're all, we're all sitting there. And our job was to develop the world based on you know sort of damon and jj's ideas so my second day at lost was the first day that there was a pilot script um so and basically on that first day damon sat down and downloaded us on everything that he had in mind there were things like you know the hatch uh the thing that became the dharma initiative was already baked in there um, you know, a lot of ideas about what the island was, you know, it being a sort of site for Manichean conflict over many, many, many decades and centuries and stuff like that. That was all in there. And what's interesting is I think that, you know, people, people say that it's only, you know, people only ask this question about Lost, I think, because the show was so popular. But it was no different from a lot of shows. You come in knowing a lot of your basics. And then the day-to-day work of the room is to break those basics down into the episode. So when people talk about loss and they go like, well, they were just making it up as they went along. I'm like, yeah. And also we knew a lot about what we were doing. You know, we we literally figured it all out. Right. And we just had this room. We we had this 747 full of all this shit, (laughs) you know, and then week after week, day after day, we, you know, look in the 747s and say, okay, we're going to take this part of it out and look at this one, you know, and that's true of every writer's room. So it's very easy to, you know, I think, I think that there, we erred a little bit in sort of telling the audience things like we've got everything figured out. We've got five years worth of story, blah, 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 you know? And I think that that really sort of the beauty of the writer's room is that you create a colloquium of ideas and then they get tested week after week in the writer's room as you break each individual episode. And that evolution worked out so beautifully and lost in the, especially in the first season, which, I mean, I'm proud of to the, to the point of arrogance, um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like, that's what the room does. You know, we spent, we spent from that day before the pilot was written all the way to the upfronts in May figuring the show out. Okay. And let me tell you about something that we figured out in that room. Um, the pilot had these little micro flashbacks to the airplane before they crash, Right. And beyond that, there was no plan to do any kind of flashbacks on the show. So the pilot is being made, Damon and JJ are in post. We basically, you know, we, we've, we've, written extensive character biographies we've come up with episode ideas stuff has been pitched to avc we're in the process of making the show and damon says well we should start breaking episode two and we knew that that was going to be about a euthanasia thing and all of the stuff that happens in episode two right um but then the b story was like hurley digs a latrine or people sort leaves and stuff like that like it was really these island stories were very hard to put together because they're on an island and the room sort of came up with this idea of, you know, we have flashbacks in the pilot. Why don't we, we've got these extensive backstories. Why don't we use, that didn't happen until like April or May. you know. And I think that that's the thing. And then people use that as an excuse for, oh, you didn't know what you were doing. And it's like, because we were creating it, <laughs> you know? I mean, and, and, and it makes you ask the question of, was this, a, you know, for you to be satisfied, would, did JJ have to come in with like a, a, an actual Bible with gold foil on the pages? With everything about Lost for you to be satisfied that we knew what we were doing, so I, th- I think with Lost because of the nature of that show, because of the hyper and that show and all that, it, we're especially picked over for having done something that all TV shows do. That's in amazing. your
1: experiences in other rooms, it's that mm-hmm. same rhythm yeah, and flow, totally. right? You have ideas, and then it gets developed in the room. Yeah,
2: the different and 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 honestly, with Lost, it wasn't even all that different from you know. Um, I ran this show called The Middleman uh, 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 528 years ago. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, like basically the way we would do it was, you know, like every Friday, I told the writers, every Friday come in, Friday come in with an episodic pitch for the episode story, you know? And then we would decide which ones we do and put those up on the board. And then the room was working on all of the personal stories going simultaneously because the show wasn't serialized. But look, on Lost, it was the same thing. We needed to figure out what the story was for that week. You know, we knew what the dart was, it was called the Medusa Corporation originally. We knew what that was, right? But that doesn't mean we know what happens when someone is sick on the island and has to be euthanized. You know, you have to still figure out the dramatics of that and what the characters are thinking and all that. That's every writer's room on Earth. And it's the same way we did The Hundred. You know, it's the same way that we did The Dark Crystal. It was, you know, the same way Lost was done. You, you, You spend a number of weeks at the beginning of your season figuring out the tent poles, figuring out the mythology, figuring out what parts of the greater mythology that you've come up from the beginning fit in the season. And then you break it down week after week and it takes that long to do it.
0: That's so amazing. That's Rebecca asked us about Lost and I think now about every show you've been on about mm-hmm. pacing. Yeah, She saw Lost as a masterclass in pacing and she wondered about the process of how you do that in the room and think that through in terms of that pacing.
2: Well, I think on Lost, we, we all sat in that room and we went, well, we're masters, so let's teach a master class in pacing. <laughs> no, uh, you know what? I mean, honestly, it, it's, it's so nice to hear that because you have no idea how Seat of the Pants Lost was. I mean, because it was developed in such a hurry and then because the show was so logistically complicated with our production in Hawaii and kind of, I mean, we, were, we, were, we put the fuselage of an L-1011 on a barge to Hawaii before we had um, like a cast. <laughs> You know, before there was a script, I mean, the first script that, 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 that J.J. and Damon brought in was the script where Jack dies in the first 15 minutes of the show. You know, the, 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 the whole idea was they were going to get a big star and the name Michael Keaton kept, be, kept being bandied around. You'd think for the first 15 minutes that he was the lead and then like an executive decision, you know, with Segal, he'd get killed. And then, you know, um, which, which led to one of the moments I dine out most about Lost, which was when I read the script and they asked me what I thought. I said, you can't kill the white guy. Uh, so amazing. As, a, as a Puerto Rican, I think I can say that, <laughs> you know, and, and then when they came back from network notes, I said, how'd I go? And they're like, yeah, we can't kill the white guy. I'm like, yep. <laughs> so, but, um, no, look, um, lost was a, a chaotic and dramatic and incredible experience. And we literally walked into that writer's room and Damon would come in with a large knife and he would split his chest open and put all the viscera on the table and say, well, guys, that's what we're doing today. And then he'd hand the knife and he'd pass it around and we'd all do the same thing, you know? Um, so we were- Sounds very we were, Pixar,
0: I have to say. That, is it? that's I was a, like, like <laughs> You could use that same image at Pixar. <laughs> yeah, I was like,
1: this feels so, I feel so at home in this conversation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, yeah. it's a, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I spent two years working with, 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 with that group and with Damon specifically. And um, so much of what that show is about is primarily, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of his stuff, but it's a lot of our stuff too, you know? Um, and, and, and it is that raw and it was and, and I think when you talk about the pacing, all of that, how I use it now is retroactive to what we did on lost. We made that first season. We just made that first season. We had no choice, you know? Um, so we made it, and and it wasn't like i mean it's it, ah, it like we were being chased by a bear you don't think about i'm going to modulate my pace so that the bear doesn't catch me you're just going oh shit i'm being chased by a bear i would better run um, and i think and i think after the fact you know i sort of looked at it and also during it because i was really active on live journal and i was blogging a lot about how we made the show especially after it became popular so i was in, i was in a after it premiered and and you know we were a hit and and i spent a lot of time thinking about what we were doing in there so ultimately um, you know, like when we went to do the dark crystal, for example, or, or even when I went to work on the third season of the hundred, the techniques that, that we used that, that I used that came out of lost were all figured out after the fact,
0: <laughs> we actually well, have the- a question about the dark crystal, um, oh, which cool. is okay. <laughs> when you're developing a series based on such beloved IP
2: Jason mm-hmm. asks, um,
0: especially if you're a fan already, how do you mm-hmm. modulate your expectations about that?
2: Um, wow well first of all you know it's funny um i'd never thought about fan expectations for the dark crystal for example because um we had to get everything past lisa henson you know (laughs) so it's like she's she's my boss she's jim henson's daughter you know she PA'd on the original movie she knows she knows what is the dark crystal and what isn't so if i satisfy her i figured okay we're good you know and jeff uh, addis and will matthews who developed the show and louie um, you know, we, we, um, we were all big fans of it. We all loved it. We were all in thrall and just awe of being in the Jim Henson lot doing that work. And look, I don't, you know, honestly, the Dark crystal is, is a very odd one for me. Um, Will and Jeff are brilliant and they had created this great pilot and I read it. I loved it. And I said, what can I do to help? And my role there was to sort of be like, like, a like an elder presence in the room. Cause Will and Jeff hadn't really even stepped in a writer's room until they sold their first pilot. You know, They were feature writers and they'd done a bunch of other stuff. Um, so my job was to, 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 be, to be that presence in the room. So I didn't come into it with expectations of what I wanna do with The Dark Crystal necessarily. I came into it thinking my job is to produce Will and Jeff, is to make sure that they're always in the front, to make sure that they're seen as the creators of the show, to make sure that, that they have the skills which they did in spades, you know, I don't, I, I you know, but, but it was just to, 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 to provide that coaching thing. And what I think, what I think happened for me was when I, when I was able to put my ego aside a little bit that way, um, I was actually a better writer for the dark crystal because there's stuff in my mind that I would just kind of blurt out going, well, maybe it'll go, maybe it won't. And then a bunch of things, you know, like I look at the dark crystal, there's a lot of me in that show and it's not at anyone's expense. There's a lot of Will and Jeff in that show. Cause they, it's a lot of Louie. Um, and I think we all came into it with with our own sort of expectations of it but for me not having expectations was was uh and and knowing that the bar was set very high in terms of who we had to satisfy that was that was all of the matrix of expectations that i had <laughs> you know
3: i feel like what i'm hearing javi is like in the room your mm-hmm. job is to serve the show right it's never about serving yourself mm-hmm. you know it's about serving the show and like even you know, when you have IP, you are still developing a specific show, even though you were borrowing from that IP, you had Mm -hmm. to be serving that specific. I keep repeating myself, Mm -hmm.
2: but apropos of your first point, which is you're serving the show. I wish more showrunners knew that. And I wish that more writers knew that, you know, uh, the showrunners, because honestly, I've worked in so many shows where the showrunners ego was the show, you know? Um, and I don't mean what's on the page. I mean, the show, I mean, you're basically, and If that person, you know, is the kind of person who's like a firefighter, arsonist and a last minute savior, you're fucked, (laughs) you know? Um, Because all they do is create problems only they can solve and, you know, and and waiting till the last minute to do it. And that doesn't help anybody. Um, Yes, look, even if you're the creator of a show, the characters start talking to you, you know, the characters start telling you who they are and what they want and all that. And that sounds very twee, uh, uh, you know, from us writers when we say, oh, the characters started talking to me, but they do, you know? And then the show starts talking to you. The actual show starts talking to you and saying, we got to go in this direction, you know, and I'll tell you a story about that. On, on the middleman, so, um, okay, so the, just, just the, the, the long story short is there was, a, there was a, a woman I was involved with in high school who, uh, who, who wound up being involved with like this photographer who was twice her age, right? And, and I saw that relationship and was sort of deeply traumatized by it. And it gave me a real distaste for, you know, younger, younger woman, sort of much older men relationships. They, it's like literally one of the things that I just hate looking at. Um, so so I had that thing on the middleman. I'm like, you know, the middleman is 10 to 15 years older than the other characters. He cannot have those kinds of relationships with anybody who's in the friends group of the, of the other character, who's, who's a girl who's just gotten, 21, he's like 36, right? So, but what happened was, as the show developed, he had this incredible chemistry with the character who played the best friend, you know, and, and it just, I mean, it was undeniable. It was like literally these two actors and there was nothing between them in real life, but on screen, they each looked at each other, like, like a, like, like I look at a stack of pancakes. Okay. (laughs) And, and the writers were like, dude, we got to get the middleman together with Lacey. And I'm like, absolutely not. I hate that idea. I've been traumatized by this, by, by this trope. I am not doing it. And uh, and uh, and ultimately, the writers staged an intervention, and they said, "This is what the show wants, dude." And I just had to cop to it. And and this is a show that I created. You know, that's sort totally of the song of my soul. But the show wanted something that that I wasn't ready to give, and it took all the writers to convince me. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a great example of your ego. And um, so we have a question. I think this is a Jeff question. Mm-hmm. This is about uh, sort of uh, Jeff. Do you want to ask it when? writing sci-fi genre
3: we're talking I mean you're such a master of working kind of within what we would call genre and of course everything is genre right but when we're talking about you know ideas or properties or tropes that are based on things we Mm -hmm. sort of know and recognize and love and I've always wondered like when you're diving into that I feel like you're almost making a contract with your audience that they expect certain things to show up so how do you like walk the line between giving the audience sort of those tropes that they want and that you know they want, but not falling into cliche. Like the example Mm -hmm. I use is like, you know, like the ship is going to self-destruct. Like we sort of know that that's going to happen in like a space opera type of film and we almost Mm want to see it, but we want to see it in a way that feels fresh. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that question makes sense or not, but I'd love to hear you speak on it. You know,
2: it's interesting. Um, You think of the Star Wars prequel trilogy, right? And, you know, the, 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 the first movie being very much about giving the audience, you know, that experience, uh, you know, trying to get the audience to have that old Star Wars feeling. And, you know, the second one, which is about trying to subvert all of that. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the problem with the subversion, uh, you know, especially I, th- I think in, in that film um, is, is that, I, you know, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that Star Wars is the best venue to interrogate the folly of of, uh, of entitled and overconfident masculinity, you know, um, and I think it's not about um, it's not about the um, you know sort of whether you want to subvert it. It's about whether the questions you're at whether whether you have the correct airframe to answer the questions you're asking, you know. Um, and I think that you have to be very rigorous with yourself when you look at genre material about character drama and things like that, you know, about what the characters are actually going through and what the experiences of the characters within it. Um, and I got to tell you, like, I, I, I appreciate all of these nice things you're, you're saying about me. I, but at the same time, like I, I find myself, I think that that's the area in which I have the most to learn um, and it's only dawning on well, It's not only dawning on me. I've, I've always known I was somewhat emotionally stunted, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I've always been a plot inward writer. I've always been a guy who figured out when the ship self-destructs and then I figure out what the characters have to be and what their conflicts have to be for that cool thing to happen. And that's a perfectly valid way of writing. But ultimately, you, 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 if you're gonna use a trope, you need to be rigorous about the characters really having a journey, you know? Because ultimately plot is tropes, character is feeling and together, you know, to, to, it's the Bob McKee thing, you know, together they make story. Um, and, and I think, and look, I, I, with, for example, with dark crystal, right. Um, I know what I'm getting into, I'm, I'm making a high fantasy show, you know, so there's a bunch of sort of things that, that maybe, but, you know, uh, if you're going to interrogate certain things, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you need to be conscious of the venue and what people want from the venue and what the bandwidth is and what that airframe will support, you know, did, did that make any damn sense? Yeah, <laughs>
1: totally. Yeah. Totally.
2: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Because so, the, the ship blowing up is a metaphor for the interior of the character. Mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. It's the dream metaphor for the what's happening inside. So mm-hmm. it makes complete
3: sense. Well, it's and like, look, we if you look at... and I was going to say, we can't arrive at those moments unless we've done mm-hmm. the work, the character work to support yeah, those moments, right?
2: Exactly. But look, the, the best ship blowing up sequence, in my experience, is the, the last act of Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan, right? And it's amazing how much him finally, Khan finally, you know, igniting the Genesis device to self-destruct the ship to kill Kirk and himself in the process. It is such a, you know, the movie is called the wrath of Khan, right? So we know what his deal is, <laughs> but when you get to that point, even though the movie's called the wrath of Khan, it's almost like, um, you know, like you're like, damn, he's, he's really angry. <laughs> you know? And it's like, this is the, this is the end point of that level of irrational fury and you buy it because you've been with that character all through the journey, you know? And and I think that whether it's Kirk's character in that film or or Khan or whatever, one of the really, and look that that movie's a piece of pulp fiction, um, and it's a wonderful piece, beautifully constructed piece of pulp fiction. But um, what it really does is, if if you're a fan of it or if you come into it and you like those characters, you know, you're you're watching Kirk go through his midlife crisis, and you're watching Khan go through, you know, a kind of you know. I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but he's somebody who's basically been in jail and he's sprung out, and he's gonna, you know, get get his. And they both have have arcs that end exactly where they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's a, and 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 that's the thought process you need to have going into it. When people ask me when do I think a script is done, I always say the same thing, which is when you feel like your main character has been through a journey they can't go back from.
0: I, oh God, I love that. I love put that on a put that on a t shirt, please. Totally. <laughs> yeah just write that down
2: (laughs) (laughs) you guys are so kind that's
1: really great um i have so a lot of uh people ask questions you know advice for writers uh and so richard asked about original pilots so original pilots as samples have become more sought after you know Mm -hmm. it used to be spec episodes um so now it seems mostly original is there any purpose to write a spec episode like are showrunners reading them to staff.
2: I think you should do one regardless, and look, I, I I get it. It's it's a pain in the ass. It's time consuming. I don't care. Learn how to write other people's show. If you want to be a TV writer, and you have you know, look, people are are coming into this field who you know they wrote a great blog. They have a great Twitter stream. You know, I, I mean, it's it's great. You know, I don't judge that. If that's how you got in, great. But here's the thing. If you want longevity as a television writer, you're eventually going to have to write somebody else's work, you know, in somebody else's world. And if you haven't polished your chops on doing that, you're going to be really bad at it. Um, so, it, and it doesn't matter whether you're like, you know, the, 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 the fresh new voice of the American theater. Um, television, whether you're doing an eight episode, you know, fantasy show for Netflix, or whether you're doing a 22 episode Dick Wolf show on, on, on NBC, television requires that the series have a unified voice. So you need to learn how to do that. So the, the question of whether agent, agents want it, I think is something that's just jettison altogether. You need both. You need a pilot and you need a spec and maybe you need two specs. Maybe you need, you obviously need more than one spec pilot. You need more than one sample. Do don't do it. Wondering whether the agents want it is putting the cart before the horse. It's not about commerce. It's about your own education as a writer, you know, and, and if I bring you into my writer's room and you hand me your first draft and it looks like a play, you know, I'm not going to be horribly mad at you. I'm going to be very kind and I'm going to hand you a copy of the pilot script I wrote and said, I would like for it to look more like this, please. Mm -hmm. You know, and there would be a conversation about that, but on the inside, I'd be pretty pissed. Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm seeing somebody who hasn't had the requisite education to be in this room.
1: Right. There are a lot of questions about what should I be doing, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, a, a spec and a, an original. Mm-hmm. And then, you right. know, how do I pick which show to spec? Because the, mm-hmm. there's thousands of shows now, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. how do you know if you're, if the people reading it have watched that show and are mm-hmm. familiar with what it is? Does that matter?
2: No, of course not. <laughs> it's you know i mean look there's there's like nine million networks like you know like like it's literally like i get a call from my agent and it's like there's this new show they want you for the, their mini writer's room and i'm like what's the show and they're like oh it's called you know coffins from space and i'm like oh that sounds awesome i like coffins i love space let's do it and i'm like where's the show gonna be on he goes it's on flimby and i'm like what the fuck is flimby is it, he's like well i don't know and i'm like you don't know he's like well I, it's an app or a web page or a streamer i don't know but they're they're getting into television. (laughs) Right. Write the show that most speaks to you and that you would most want to write on. You're not doing this for your agent. If your agent gets it and says, oh my God, there's an executive at Flimby who's just dying to read an episode of The Octonauts, then great, you know? But the real reason you're doing it is because you want to be a good television writer. Um, So, and now more than ever, look, there was a time when all of television was 22, 22 episode orders on the air, i.e. when I started working in 1993, when you, you had to pick a popular show. My first spec was in, oh, sorry. I just hit my mic, I apologize. My first spec was in X-Files, you know? Uh, if you wanted to be a genre writer, you were a Star Trek, you wrote an X-Files. If you wanted to be a classy Emmy-winning writer, you wrote an NYPD Blue. Everybody had an X-Files. An, in, in 1995 to 1998, everybody had an X-Files. An, that entire environment has changed. You want to sell things, you want a sample, you write spec pilots. I think that's deeply unfair too, by the way, because I also think, you know, pilots are kind of the brain surgery of this. You know, um, it's, it's, it's like, it's like you know, I, I think that the, the requirements of a pilot are so draconian and we're asking the youngest writers and the least experienced writers in our midst to write them, you know, for no money uh, without help you know, without the help of a writer's room, without the help of executives and executives are a help in this stuff. I know people don't believe that. Um, And, you know, that's that's neither here nor there, but that's the environment we're in. That's what we do now. We write spec pilots.
1: I think that the piece that you said, like, instead of putting the, you know, putting it on what your agent wants or what Mm -hmm. someone else says they want, or what someone else says they, you should do that. It's about like, what do I want to be doing? Right. Where Mm -hmm. do I want to be writing? I want to be writing in this space. So I'm going to write a spec in this space that, that you, that there's this idea of like, I just want any foot in the door. I want Mm -hmm. any job when, if it's not right for you, you're not going to do well in that environment. Mm -hmm. So to really think about that. Who am i what's my voice what do i want to write yeah, yeah.
0: what's your you're a widget in essence right so what what are you really good at what, what excites you yeah. um so javi let's assume our young writer our emerging writer has done their homework they've written a couple of samples that are based on other shows other show episodes they've written their spec pilots how let's assume they even have a manager and agent. How do Mm -hmm. they break in? How do you, for that's always their next question, right? Like Mm -hmm. how do you get noticed in all of the sea of of people? So you're a showrunner, you're reading scripts. Are you, what are you looking for in those scripts? It's
2: interesting that writers are asking that because that's actually an agent and manager question. Um, and I get it that writers have to be much more entrepreneurial these days because of the fragmentation of the market and all that, but I don't think the fundamental job of the agent and the manager has changed. And And I'll answer the question for writers too, but look at the end of the day, this is a numbers game and the numbers are this, how many general meetings can your agent and manager get you at the studio and production company level and network level so that a bunch of people know you and like you so that when they have to staff a show, they're saying your name, that's it. It's a numbers game. You need an you need an agent and a manager who understands that and will try to get you in as many places as possible. And the biggest complaint that I get right now about agents and managers is my agent, my manager, they don't know that many people. You know, there's a couple of reasons for that. The business is so big, and also for the last year, no one's been in a bullpen, so nobody can run into a bullpen and go, "Does anybody know anyone at Flimby?" You know, and then like the, so somebody on the other side goes, "I got a contact over there," and then they, you know they make the call together. So it's an agent and manager job but you're a writer you want to be noticed and you're not writing a script because you're in your two weeks of postpartum doldrums and you hate yourself so you want to be seen right <laughs> what right. stop stop seeing me <laughs> oh,
1: um, stop look at me don't look at me
2: <laughs> uh, I'm sorry I did <laughs> um so you know it's like um look social media um is the Right now, the best way to do that, anyone can talk to me on social media. You know, I'd rather they didn't talk to me like they knew me, you know, or like they were my friends or family. I mean, I think it's a very you know, it's a good relationship you can have on social media, but you're not best friends with everybody, you know. But you can network so many more. Like you can get to know so many more showrunners now because fundamentally, you know, I think I think fundamentally there there's there's two kinds of writers. Um, there's there's um, there's those of us who got into writing um, to get the love and attention that we didn't get us. And, and we will admit to it that we got into writing for the love of attention. We never got as kids. And then the Again, second type of writer. Yeah.
1: Stop looking at me.
2: Well, what I'm going to say it. is the, sec- yeah, the second type of writers are damn liars. Cause that's why they're in it too. <laughs> so there's the honest ones and the damn liars. Many of us are on Twitter and frankly, it, nobody gets tired of, you know, being paid attention to. And it doesn't mean that you should spam somebody, but it means that if you are, you know, if if you're a reasonably cool person who's not gonna like overstep and, and and has a good good idea of boundaries, you can you can get a lot of advice and a lot of you know relationship with people like me that absolutely no way you'd have gotten in the '90s, you know. Um, and that's how. But and if you're not a social media person, I think that you know you're and you have a manager and an agent. It really just becomes about you know getting the manager and the agent to really. And then there's also look, this there's, there's all the other things. Right now, this is a time when there are more programs, more committees more fellowships, more contests, more of everything. And some of them are even legitimate, (laughs) you know? So ways for a writer to get attention are not exactly um, opaque, but the problem is, is that there's no magic sauce. Um, You know, there's no one way to do it. You're not going to have my career. I'm not going to have your career. And, and oftentimes that question of how do you break in presumes that there's a path and there's no path. We're just all, we're all just like, water Making molecules up, bouncing man. off of each other. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you yeah.
0: know. So our last for our last question here, because um, I know we're running out of time is, okay, so now our emerging writer, they've done their homework, they've gotten the agent and manager, they've actually gotten in to interview with you and you've chosen them to be in your room. They're showing up on the first day. What is your advice to those young um, writers coming into your room?
2: Don't, don't be a doctor now. I understand that your critical faculty has developed, especially now that you're on Twitter and you talk about all the stuff you hate, which you shouldn't do. Um, (laughs) Right. um, If you can't fix it, don't break it. It's that simple. You know, if you don't have an idea to pitch in place of the thing you don't like, just listen, you know, it's okay to just listen. And if you're not talking enough, somebody's going to tell you and it's going to be fine. Um, But and also read the room, you know? Um, there's some showrunners who just want an audience. I don't like working for them, but there's some of them. There's showrunners who, you know, want to be, um, you know, you, you just have to figure out what kind of, what your showrunner's management style is. So the moment you get there, you know, you should be observing, you know, and not necessarily looking to make your mark. But the other, however, I would also say this, when the, showrunners, when the showrunner says, everybody come in with five pitches on Friday and Friday rolls along, I would say the other thing you should do is always volunteer to be first. And I think we, t- we, t- we talked about this in the other panel and people weren't asking questions immediately. Always be first, because if you raise your hand first and your idea is brilliant, you've set the tone. If you raise your hand first and your idea sucks, then the showrunner will say, you know, oh, this is not quite this, this is not quite that, or whatever, and then they'll move on. And by the end of the day, nobody's going to remember your idea sucked. You
0: You're will, though. But that's, that's really advice. important. Every piece of advice you just gave. Yes. <laughs> It's asking the person to put their fear of their anxiety of themselves and their ego and how will I appear and how will I look and you know you know I have to be smart so I'm going to see everything that's wrong. You're asking them to turn all that off and be present to observe the showrunner, uh, observe the room, listen, think about the ideas about the story. Uh, everything you're talking about is about being present as a writer. Oh versus walking in with your fear, which is gonna yeah. trigger your ego, right? And it's hard to do, believe me. I, I remember the first day walking into a TV room. It's hard to do, but that's the that's the goal to do. I think mm-hmm. it's it's really important for any room you walk into. Yeah. You could w- be walking into an interview with a manager. You could be walking into uh, a, a feature room. Uh, you could be walking into a room at Pixar. It's, it's the same process of you've gotta get present with the story and what's happening in the room.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think ultimately, you, you know, you, you, few people hate themselves as much as I do. Okay. Um, <laughs> and few people hate me as much as I do. Uh, <laughs> and that makes it real easy to go through life. But um, about halfway through my career, around the time when I, when I walked, when, when I, when I quit Lost, and that was about 10 years into my career. Um, and I walked out and I, and I remember after everything I'd been through on Lost and the crazy, insane roller coaster of popularity and everything else that happened on that show, I remember sitting there for a second and I said, you know, a showrunner can tell me that I can't write their show, but a showrunner is never gonna be able to tell me that I can't write. You know, I am, I am a writer and I am good at this and that's why I was working on this level and I can't continue to pretend that I have imposter syndrome or whatever the, the math is just way too much in my favor. So it, it was actually harder to make peace with the idea that I'm good, competent, and worthy than with the idea that I suck and I'm, and I'm an imposter because that's actually ultimately a very comfortable place to be because you know what everything is. When you say, I'm good at this and I'm gonna go into the great unknown, you're going into the great unknown, right? And look, for me, the great unknown right now is it, it's, it's, it's improving my understanding and exploration of character. Um, but the moment that you say to yourself, I'm a good writer. The showrunner read my script. They liked it. They hired me. And all I need to do is be here, you know, and not be worried about what they think of me or what they think of me or whatever. I'm in this room. I earned this seat. Then you can be there, you know? And, and look, I think that the best analog for it is the code of the samurai, mm-hmm. um, you know, where the samurai assume they're dead before they go into battle. So whatever happens in battle, fuck it, you know? And, and that, I just remember, you know, having quit Lost and my last day as I was leaving, holding this banker's box, I was very sad about it. Um, nobody, nobody wants to quit the most popular Emmy award-winning show on television, okay? So there was very mixed emotions. And, um, but I remember just having that moment because I was going to go work on another show and, and the showrunner for that show is somebody who is known to be a very tough grader. Um, and, and, and I just remember going, yeah, but fuck it. I'm gonna pitch everything I can. I'm gonna leave it all on the table. And if they don't like me, that's on them. Mm.
1: What pisses you off about writing?
2: (laughs) What pisses me off about writing? Um, When you write an entire script and you know there's some foundational premise of it that's wrong, but you try to get away with it and then you give it to your friend and they go, dude, there's a foundational thing wrong with this. And you go like, oh, just give it to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've written so much in that kind of delusional state of, no, this, this, no, it's not a problem that I have a monstrous carbuncle in the middle of my forehead. That's fine. It's going to be fine. And then you're like, oh, the problem here is the character's got to have a monstrous carbuncle in the middle of my forehead. Okay. I guess I got to go burn it off and go through that pain. You know, that's awesome.
3: <laughs> and then the follow-up to that is what brings you the most joy about writing?
2: All of it. I, I love, right. I don't look, I don't have hobbies. I'm not, I'm not a functioning person. You know, um, I I don't have hobbies. I don't have, I I like going to the movies. I like watching television. I like, and my hobby is writing long memoir essays, everything, everything that, that, you know, obviously my children and my wife are the most important thing in my life, but, you know, my relationship with my daughter, um, is mediated, you know, by her love of the Avengers, you know, that's where we bond. I mean, it's like, so honestly, like, I love writing. I love sitting down at the keyboard and, and, and banging it out, even when it's really frustrating. It's just, it's what I do. And I'll, I'll do you know what acemic writing is? I don't think you know, I do. No, it's, it's, it's a kind of art that's gotten a lot of traction recently where you're literally, you literally create uh, uh, letters and, 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 and they don't mean anything, but you're organizing them like writing on the page. So you create, and, and it's, it's, it, I mean, I love the work that a lot of people are doing and I literally developed like an alien language. And I spent most of the time I was, I doodle while I, I have this scorching case of attention deficit disorder, so like I need to doodle while while I'm in a writer's room so that I can actually be present. And for most of the Dark Crystal, Blood and Treasure, and Cowboy Bebop, I must have drawn about 500 note cards of this of this alien language, okay? Because even while I'm in a room writing, the way that I love the scratch of ink on paper so much that I'm writing fake words in a fake language on a page. Wow!
0: Amazing. I love wow. It.
2: Don't be like me, have a relationship no, oh and it's
0: smoke okay, drugs so- <laughs> and, and
2: have a real life guys. It's, you don't want to, you don't.
0: <laughs> right, so our last question is <laughs> yeah. if you could be remembered for any scene, what would it be?
2: Um, in the middleman pilot, uh, the premise of it is that super intelligent gorillas have escaped from a lab and have decided to earn their keep in the world by taking over the local mafia. And there's a scene where there is a silverback gorilla uh, in a strip club. Uh, (laughs) And and he's running his mob empire. And um, I got to do that on television. (laughs) (laughs) Like a silverback gorilla in a tracksuit, a Tony Soprano tracksuit, right? In a Tony Soprano strip club, like running running his, his mafia business before. You know, it's either that or it's in episode seven of The Dark Crystal. um, We had to do an exposition dump where we had to explain the entire mythology of The Dark Crystal to the characters in the show. And it, it is the most bananas convo, like I couldn't begin to explain it to you. It's like, you know, it's like there was this planet called Thra. There was a crystal in the middle of it. The crystal spawned this woman named Agra, who was sort of like a weird imp with a third eye. And the crystal was also her heart. And then the planet was invaded by another species called the Erskex. And then the Erskeks took control of the crystal and trying to purify themselves. They split into two beings while- do you remember this- it all. <laughs> it's, it's insane. You, ca- you can't explain it. Okay. So, um, and I had this idea to have the puppets do a puppet show explaining the mythology. And again, I am proud of this to the point of like being insufferable, but like they made it, they shot it, we got it past all the goalies and they made this thing. And I remember just going like, oh my God, like, look, I'm sure I've written I don't know, but this is just like I'm like I'm the guy who did the puppet show in the puppet show.
0: Oh my god, you're <laughs> so on. delighted! I love it. You're so delighted. You're so delighted. Amazing. Dark Crystal. So it was like
2: going to work on that show was like eating candy every day. It oh. was just the best thing ever. You're you know like look, this is this is what everybody listening to this podcast wants. This is when you're going to know it. You know, I went into a room, and the Jim Henson Archives had given us a framed picture of Jim Henson. Frank Oz and Gary Kurtz. Gary Kurtz produced this little independent film called *Star Wars*, um, looking at a puppet, and it was just sort of a picture of the three of them at work, right? And I and I, would, and I had seen that picture in *Starlog* magazine when I was thirteen years old. Okay, and I went to work at the Jim Henson Studios in a room that had that photo, and then when the making of book for *The Dark Crystal* came out, I you know my daughter was really into that. She can't watch the show because it's nightmare fuel, but. Um, She's really into it. And I, she knows the names of all the mystics and the Skexies and everything. And she reads the storybooks and all that. And I opened the Making of the Dark, Crystal Age of Resistance book to a page that has a photo of me on the set. And I realized, and she went, daddy. I'm like, I'm like who's this? She's like, that's the collector. And I'm like, who's that? That's, that's Jen, that's Rianne, that's blah, 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 And then I opened the page and I'm like, who's that? And she goes, daddy. And I'm like, I got to literally walk in the footsteps of these wizards that I worshiped when I was a, was a kid. And my photo is in one of these making of books. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's it. That's, you know, like you that can be it. rich, you can be famous, you can be whatever, but it's like, this is, this is the reason, you know, it, it's, it's, I helped further Jim Henson's legacy. My God, you know, um, Amazing. it was, it was, it was Fantastic. so wonderful. I, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the,
0: yeah. Thank you so okay. much for being here. All right. Thank um,
2: you guys. And uh, I, I hope, uh, I hope I will at some point meet you both in person.
0: Yes. I hope <laughs> nice, yeah, All do. three of
2: you. <laughs> so.
0: Check out uh, Javi on online. You can find him on Twitter under his uh, handle. Ready? At OKBJGM. Yes. Did I get that right? I'll say it again because everybody's listening and they're they're walking their dog and listening. At OKBJGM. He also has a link in his bio there to some incredibly helpful writing resources. Really, just, just Google him, guys. He writes amazing writing essays.
2: Thank you.
1: And, uh, thanks.
0: Oh oh,
2: oh, oh, and yeah. the other thing I want to say, I'm sorry, also in that page, um, I have a page where I have PDFs of pretty much every pilot I've ever written, oh. samples of lost scripts, feature scripts I've written that didn't sell, Bibles, pitches, like the entire history of my development, how I've developed and all of that. And I'm not putting it up there so that you can do it like me, you can do it any way you want, but it's just so that you can see how... Oh. I found out most people don't pitch until they pitch, so I'm trying to... to, to Gets resources out there. So if, if you need models for some of this stuff, I've I put it out there.
0: Amazing resource. I'm going there as soon as we're done with this.
2: <laughs> you don't have to, you know, that. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, on a, on a professional and craft level, I'm lucky to be <laughs> occupying the same space as you guys. Come on. Come on. So um, cool. Well, thank you so much
1: so thanks for tuning in and if you haven't yet please join our facebook group Um, that's the best place to ask questions and get immediate feedback from us and our other uh, fans and if you have an anonymous question you can email us at the screenwritinglife at gmail.com and we will do our best to get to it we have a lot of emails over there so we can't get to everything
0: um so please drop us a review on apple Podcasts.
1: that helps us out helps us keep going remember you are not alone and keep
3: writing Another amazing episode of TSL. Thank you so much to Javi or Grigio Watch for that amazing interview. Javi is just such a generous writer and um, he just gave us so much today. And if you haven't been to his website, there are really tons of resources there. Unsold pilots and features and pitch decks and Bibles and just anything you could need. So I have linked Javi's website in the description below. You should definitely check it out. All right, now it's time for some of your amazing reviews, courtesy of our awesome audience. I'm going to start with That's No Moon, whose review says, Screenwriting and mental health asset. Come to this space to learn that your writing heroes are mere mortals. They too have to slog through the mud while balancing the many plates of life and work. Thank you for the transparency and vulnerability. Uh, That's No Moon, that's why we're here. Thanks for being a listener. All right, next up we have a review by Gup, who says, Great listen. Insightful, helpful, funny, human. A good listen for any writer. Finally, Tim Hume says, this is a fantastic screenwriting podcast. I love this podcast. Is it for you? Take this handy quiz and find out. One, can you read or write? If yes, score three points. Two, are you currently a writer? If yes, score two points. Three, are you or do you want to be a writer? If yes, score four points. Four, are you a human being? If yes, score one point. Five, do you have emotions? If yes, score two points. Six, do you have vulnerabilities? If yes, score three points. Seven, do you want to experience a sense of community and less loneliness? If yes, seven points. Finally, eight, do you want to learn more about being a screenwriter? If yes, score five. He says at the end, if you scored more than two points, this podcast is for you. Uh, I love that handy little uh, quiz, Tim. Thank you so much. Finally, we have No BS in NYC who says that this is their official favorite podcast. I'm in love with this podcast. Every episode is both educational and motivational. The hosts are charismatic as can be, and the content focuses on writing and development techniques and tools of the trade, as well as the business aspects of being a writer. It's an utterly engaging, holistic approach to growing as a screenwriter. Keep up the great work. Uh, We will keep up the great work. Thank you for those reviews. And the reason we read those reviews is to not only feature your amazing writing on our show, but because it really, really helps us. And the more reviews we get, the more visible we become, and the longer we can do this show. So if you haven't written a review on Apple Podcasts yet, uh, we ask that you would consider it. You know, those five stars in that review really help our visibility. Um, Or if you haven't joined our Facebook group, we think that's a great idea as well. Um, You know, there's a huge community over there. And if you have questions or concerns or just need some support, that's the place to go. And I think that's all I've got this week. So as I say every week, y'all, happy writing.